you may have been wondering why are we talking about this? Why is scurvy um, something that the Long Now Foundation, the interval, is going to do an event about? Well, there, there are a bunch of reasons, but this is one of them. <laughs> this is a real website. Uh, it is, it is the, uh, the great ambassador of scurvy awareness in the 21st century. That's Limestrong. Don't, don't mistype it as something else. It's Limestrong. Um, and so uh, one day around the office, I actually wasn't in the room at the time, believe it or not, but uh, a, a, a number of uh, Long Now's finest, Dan Linder, if you're there on the live stream, hi, Dan, um, and, uh, and, and the other folks in the office, uh, we're, we're like, well, scurvy is this, actually this amazing long now story. Now, these guys are, I have to say, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Note that cats wearing fruit helmets is only a couple notches down from ways to prevent scurvy. So <laughs> it may not be the most rigorous of organizations, but <laughs> nonetheless, it inspired us. And, uh, and, and Scurvy Awareness Day was just a couple weeks ago on May 2nd. So, but when we think about scurvy, we are mostly thinking about history. Uh, we're thinking about this gentleman. Uh, Mr. James Lind, who you'll hear much more about, and his old-timey book. How, how old is the scurvy stuff? It's at a time when actually, apparently, before the letter S was invented, <laughs> which is pretty remarkable. Um, but scurvy is still with us, and that's uh, why we're really talking about it today. And there, there are a number of long-term themes that interest us that are uh, a, a part of this. So. Um, here's, here's where it is. In, in the U.S., um, 6 to 8%, now, a lot of times it's not diagnosed as scurvy because, believe it or not, unless you've got a, a doctor with a peg leg, uh, scurvy is typically not the first diagnosis they look at, but a vitamin C deficiency, which is really what's at the core of scurvy, at the level that would be scurvy is uh, fairly common, especially for folks uh, that are the poorest in uh, our country, um, and in some cases, uh, male smokers who are up to 18% of male smokers uh, have that kind of vitamin deficiency. And in fact, there's something called occult scurvy, um, which is essentially scurvy, but without some of the more extreme physical uh, physical symptoms that you're going <laughs> to get a get a glimpse of tonight. Um, and I don't know why they don't use this word more, because I mean, it's, it's occult scurvy. But yeah, so, so, so students, a lot of times, are, are in this kind of uh, condition. Um, and it's not surprising, because uh, as you can see from this map, um, every state in the country, uh, at least 30% of the population is not eating a serving of fruit a day. And uh, it, it's much worse in some areas. So, so what's up? Are, why are these people not? Um, eating what they should be. Are they, are they stupid? Are they just stupid? Are they, well, no. Um, but but there, there, is, um, there, there is a situation, um, food deserts are, are a reality where um, healthy food is largely unavailable and bad uh, food or unhealthy food is highly available and very cheap. And so the, the phenomenon of urban food deserts is definitely a contributing factor. There are also populations that are particularly uh, at risk for scurvy, whether it's diagnosed as scurvy or not. And there have been increasing diagnoses of uh, scurvy. Um, those numbers before I, I should mention are CDC numbers. So these are, uh, these are real studies. Lots of studies have been done on this. Um, so 
populations that are uh, eating a monotonous diet for various reasons, institutions, um, schools, as we mentioned, hospitals, prisoners, soldiers, uh, there are a lot of uh, scenarios where folks end up with it. And so just a word about refugee camps. Um, this uh, shows uh, a number of different vitamin deficiencies that can happen, uh, including vitamin A, but uh, the vitamin C down here at the bottom up to 22% in this one. Now, these are numbers that are a little bit older uh, in the 80s, but certainly there are more refugee camps, larger refugee camps now, and the, the challenges of feeding large numbers of people uh, is, is even more uh, challenging uh, today. Um, so what's amazing is that um, the amount of vitamin C you can get from a handful of catch-up packets is really actually all uh, that, that they would need to get out of the scurvy thing. So this is our, you know, our practical um, scurvy awareness. The rest of the speakers aren't going to be this preachy, okay? I've got to be. Um, no, and, but I do have this last, because once you start hearing about scurvy, you will start wondering whether you are having enough vitamin C. So here's a handy chart that shows you some of the foods and, and various vitamin C uh, content. You'll notice when you see the things that have no vitamin C how actually easy it would be um, to, to end up in a diet that doesn't have vitamin C. So uh, watch out uh, and uh, you're going to get some tips even right here this evening how you can up your vitamin C intake without leaving this bar. Um, but uh, so we're going we're gonna to move on now to uh, our main, and I don't have a drink coming by chance, do I? Okay, well. Um, I'm going to do, uh, yes, do I, beautiful, all right, so um, our good friends at Odd Salon, uh, who we've done events with here before, uh, have a tradition of, in their speaking series, of doing a toast at the end of each of these talks, so each of our speakers is going to do a little toast, um, and, uh, and so if you, if you have a drink, uh, please join me in this toast. So. Uh, I want to, uh, before I bring uh, our next speaker up, uh, a toast to, uh, to all of us and furthering scurvy awareness and to three years of the interval. Thank you for being here. Cheers. Mm, suffering bastard, I recommend it. All right, um, one last thing. Please hold your questions. Um, we are going to do a Q&A at the end of uh, the night. I think we're going to have time to do that. Um, so we're, we're also, we, a couple of our speakers have books which we're selling in the back and uh, we're gonna, they're going to sign at the end of the night if you have them. We're going to start off with uh, James Nestor and following that, uh, Jennifer Collio, uh, who's going to tell us uh, something about how you can improve your health. I, I want to just mention, so this is our 10th talk of 2017. James was actually our 10th speaker of all time back in 2014. So give him a big round of applause, please, Mr. James Nestor. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. All right. 
So when Michael wrote me a couple weeks ago and asked if I wanted to do a talk on scurvy, I thought, sure, you know, I've written about science a bit, written about the ocean, this sounds like fun. First thing I did was I went on Google Images and I searched the term scurvy victim. So don't ever go on Google Images and search the term scurvy victim. Trust me on this. So I apologize in advance for what you're about to see here. And if you have any problems, you can blame him, Michael, right there. So I'm going to do a 10-minute, 4,000-year-old history of scurvy. Uh, begins with exhaustion. Your thoughts become scattered. It's hard to catch your breath. Eventually, you start bruising. Your gums start bleeding. You convulse. You go blind. And you die. These are the symptoms of scurvy, the vitamin C deficiency disease that by the 1700s would claim one million sailors. But scurvy was around way before the great age of sail. It goes back to when humans were roaming the earth. So hunters and gatherers didn't really get scurvy because they were hunting and gathering. And if you're eating fresh, you're eating plenty of vitamin C. The problems started coming about around 13,000 years ago in the agrarian revolution. This is when we learned to farm, we'll go back there, and when we learned to store um, crops and wheat. And the more we started relying on crops and wheat, the more incidences of scurvy started coming up. Around 3500 BC, this came out, the Ebrus papyrus. And the Egyptian ancients not only diagnosed scurvy, but they had a cure for it. They said, eat raw onions. If you ate raw onions, you'd have plenty of vitamin C, you wouldn't get scurvy, and if you had it, you wouldn't have it for much longer. But that ancient knowledge never passed on to this guy, Hippocrates, in ancient Greece. He was the first in the West to diagnose scurvy. And he said that its victims had fetid breath, lax gums, and hemorrhages from the nose. He said the condition was incurable and would stay with victims until their death. Now, as everyone started moving north, the incidences of scurvy continued and really blossomed because, again, we were relying on stored foods, preserved foods. The 13th century crusaders... Um, had rashes of, massive rashes of scurvy, mostly during Lent when they abstained from many of their normal foods and they only ate eel meat as their primary source of protein. What they would do is they would go to the surgeon barbers and have their teeth removed so they could masticate food a little better. Uh, one of the crusaders said, the barbers were forced to cut away all the dead flesh from the gums to enable the people to eat their food. Well, this, of course, didn't work, and thousands of crusaders died. The Christians, of course, blamed the evil eels. So about 100 years later, uh, sailing technology really improved vastly. We were able to go longer and stay um, at sea for months and months at a time. Vasco da Gama in 1497 gathered 160 men and tried to find a sea route to India. What he found instead was the first incidences of sea scurvy. A sailor on board wrote a little poem of what it was like to be on that ship. <laughs> a dread disease, its rankling horrors shed, and death's dire ravage through mine army spread. 
Never mine eyes such dreary sight beheld, ghastly the mouth and gums enormous swelled, an instant putrid like a dead man's wound, poisoned with fetid streams the air round, no sage physician's ever watchful zeal, no skillful surgeon's gentle hand to heal, each dreamy mournful hour we gave some brave companion to a foreign grave. So traders in Africa immediately noticed the problem with these men. So what did they do? They gave them a bunch of oranges. A week later, the men that were still living healed miraculously. Of course, da Gama never um, acknowledged that these heathens would have some sort of cure for them. He instead had his men pray with their mouths full of their own urine, which I'm sure many of you did this morning, uh, if, if you're anything like me. So of the 160 sailors that set out on this voyage, 100 would die of scurvy. Meanwhile, in the West, Jacques Cartier, a 16th century French explorer, was leading an expedition to the eastern Canadian areas when his ship got stuck in a frozen inlet. Soon, the food started rotting. Things got really bad really quickly. Cartier wrote, the unknown sickness began to spread itself amongst us after the strangest sought that ever was heard or seen, insomuch as some did lose all their strength and could not stand on their feet. Then did their legs swell, their sinews shrink as black as any coal. With such infection did the sickness spread itself into our three ships that about the middle of February, of 110 persons that were, there were not 10 whole. So it wasn't the cold air uh, that was killing off Cartier's men, of course. It was their really crappy, rotten diet. Around the 16th century, almost all sailors, didn't matter if you were from Britain or Portugal or France or whatever, uh, they were basically eating the same thing. And this was their weekly ration. Four pounds of salted beef, seven pounds of biscuits, two pounds of salted pork, a half pound of salted fish, a chunk of butter, a chunk of cheese, and check this out, one gallon of beer every day. That's a 12-pack of beer every day. And with that beer, they uh, ate their salted meat, and they um, included that with exactly zero fruits and vegetables. So it was a diet that was just built for scurvy. And as Michael showed, I mean, you saw those last five food groups um, that have zero vitamin C. That's what they were eating. So meanwhile, in the South Pacific, Polynesian sailors were spending weeks and weeks at sea and going tremendous distances, but there were no written instances of scurvy. Why is that? Because their diet consisted of fruits, vegetables, tubers, fish, and instead of beer, what did they have to drink? Coconut water. So just a couple of coconuts is plenty of vitamin C to keep scurvy at bay and to heal you if you have problems. But Cartier didn't know about that. Back in the... Uh, in the doldrums of Canada here. Um, he was desperate to find a cure for his men, so he talked to the Iroquois Indians who told him to use the branches of the Aneda tree and to boil them. So Cartier did that. He boiled them, gave this tea to all of his men, and who would have guessed, a week later, the men who were still alive were totally healed. So um, Cartier, of course, never acknowledged that either. Um, he just, uh, this is the... <laughs> These guys were pretty uh, stubborn. By the mid-1700s, there were several dozen cures for scurvy uh, that had been documented over the past 3,000 years. 
Um, but British, American, and Portuguese doctors either never got wind of them, which seems improbable, or more likely, they refused to prescribe them because they were considered barbaric, unscientific, or even worse, French. <laughs> so instead, these doctors prescribed their own cures. Um, they forced patients to purge themselves with salt water. They rubbed mercury paste onto open sores. They bled them, or check this out, they increased the sailors' workload and the belief that the disease was caused by indolence and sloth. <laughs> so nothing worked. Men kept dying until this guy showed up. This is James Lynn. In 1747, he had a really noble idea. He was going to take all of these cures that had been bandied around and actually test them. So he gathered a group of uh, sailors who had scurvy, put them below deck on the HMS Salisbury, and treated them with six different remedies and watched what would happen to them. For two of those sailors, he ordered them to drink a quart of cider a day, not bad. Two other uh, sailors drank sulfuric acid three times a day. That's a little worse. Um, <laughs> Two more took spoonfuls of vinegar three times a day. Eh. Um, the two worst off sailors were put under a daily course of salt water. Didn't do much. Then two lucky men were administered massive doses of nutmeg. And um, if some of you may know, just, I'm just guessing here, that if you take massive doses of nutmeg, you hallucinate for like 72 hours. <laughs> So the final two were given two oranges and one lemon every day. Guess who recovered? Yes, of course, the men who were given the oranges and lemons. They showed visible good results right from the get-go. And a week later, they were so well that they were immediately put back to work. So what Lynn had just conducted, of course, was the first clinical trial. He wrote about it in this, a treatise of the scurvy. Um, but Lynn himself was never really accepted that lemons or oranges were the single cure for scurvy. Instead, he subscribed to the medical opinion at the time that scurvy had multiple causes, notably hard work, bad water, and bad diet. The treatise of scurvy actually had very little impact when it was published. Not a lot of people read it, and fewer followed it. Meanwhile, by the end of the 18th century, Scurvy had become responsible for more deaths at sea than storms, shipwrecks, combat, and all other diseases combined. So next up, Jennifer is going to tell us what happened next. Um. Thank you all so much. Uh, I am now going to kind of waylay you with a like slight um, diversionary tactic, um, uh, rather discussion of scurvy in the form of cocktails. And really, the history of scurvy is the reason we have the gimlet. Um, it's it's uh, obviously I am a for anyone who doesn't know me. I'm a total giant cocktail nerd. History uh, of all these drinks and all this stuff is very interesting to me. Um, so. Um, just to let you know, um, I'm going to be discussing the gimlet, and then um, which is made with the original gimlet is gin with roses, lime, cordial. Um, I'm going to get into that. 
That being said, we don't have Rose's Lime Cordial here. I do have a gimlet on the menu. You're welcome to order it. And if anyone does not want to have alcohol, I have prepared a separate lime cordial that we're making a bittered Ricky with, which is basically a, a, a sweet lime soda with some bitters in it. Um, okay, so like I said, we've got Rose's Lime. Right, so this was, start, this was created by a guy named Lachlan Rose, and this is his original patent. Um, it was, he patented the process by which he um, uh, preserved lime juice using sulfur. Um, and he patented this in 1867. 1867 is the same year that the Merchant Shipping Act passed requiring um, uh, sailors on merchant ships to have lime rations, for there to be lime rations uh, on, on the ships. Now, the Navy had already had these, um, uh, these protocols in place for decades, but this was the point at which the, the government said, no, no, we need to make sure that everyone who is sailing is protected. Um, However, the, the interesting thing about the 1867 point is that uh, sailors and, and the government had known about, um, about citrus being a cure for scurvy for quite some time. The original um, rations were lemons. And, however, um, the English colonizers around the world, um, people who had set up in like the West Indies, they started growing limes there, or they were cultivating limes there. So they lobbied the government to change the rations from lemons to limes, which the government did. Um, lemons have more than twice the amount of vitamin C that limes do. So there actually were some continuing problems even, even with this. Um, with, enough lime, with enough lime, it's fine. It's not, it, it definitely has vitamin C in it. It's just not quite as, um, quite as potent as the lemons. Um, so uh, they, changed, um, they changed this ration and like right then, oops, right then um, uh, Lachlan Rose was ready with his patent. So the way that, they, that he preserves lime is by taking the juice and, um, and exposing it to sulfur. So how he normally did that was to put it all, put that, um, the lime juice and sulfurous gas into an airtight container and kind of moved it around for a while until it absorbed the sulfur. Then when you would open up the container, any sulfur that hadn't been absorbed by the lime kind of off-gassed and you have this lime that, was, that actually uh, kept good for quite some time, didn't, um, didn't oxidize in that way, in the way that obviously citrus juice can, can turn really quickly. Um, before, uh, before Rose's lime had, had started doing this, they, the uh, lime juice that was available on ships um, was typically mixed with rum to a 15% ABV. So that's important later, but just remember that. Um, so the Rose's lime, there was no big booming, you know, market for non-alcoholic drinks in, in the 1860s. Um, but, <laughs> but however, he did, uh, he did set the stage for essentially making soda syrups, right? Um, okay, another thing that uh, with Rose's Lime is that it is made by crushing whole fruit. So one of the characteristics of a lime cordial is the oil content from that peel. So it's not just juice, it is, it, it, that, that lime oil is important. Um, so we have to get into a little bit of limes themselves. So Persian limes, they're not this big in real life. That's a normal lime, the kind of, when we say lime, this is what everyone thinks of, right? Um, it's a key lime. Key limes, okay, Persian limes weren't invented until 1895. Um, so when you read all this historical stuff, if you find old cocktail books with cocktail recipes that call for limes, which actually are very few, uh, they mean key limes. Um, key limes differ from Persian limes in a couple of different ways. Um, 
they are both um, sweeter and more acidic and higher in, sorry, they are more acidic, but they are higher in aromatic compounds that we associate with sweet foods, like vanilla and strawberries and that kind of thing. Um, this, essentially, they are more intense flavor. So if you are to make old, old style cocktails um, from old books, I'm sure it's just me, um, but <laughs> and, and things call for limes, really making it with key limes is really how it was meant to be. And it actually has you know, this different chemical composition. Um, so the, uh, the key limes originated in Persia. Um, just <laughs> and, were grown, and were grown all around the Middle East, and that is what people used for limes, right? So a guy in California named John T. Bears um, in, uh, in 1895 hybridized uh, the, the, the Persian lime um, called, it's also called the Bears lime. You sometimes see that, B-E-A-R-S-S. Um, he hybridized it to be larger and juicier and hardier and able to be transported more easily. Um, key limes are, you know, more fragile. They're more delicate. They go brown faster. Uh, so he, um, uh, he, patented, he, he hybridized these, these limes. Nothing really took off until a series of hurricanes in 1916 and, uh, sorry, 1926 and 1928 decimated um, orchards in, uh, in Florida, in, in the Florida Keys. So it left a hole in the marketplace for John T. Bears to, to promote his Persian lime. So, um, so just to be clear here, key limes come from Persia. That's the Florida Keys. Persian limes come from California. <laughs> so <laughs> um, now we get into, uh, into the gimlet itself. The gimlet being gin and rose's lime, um, or lime cordial, whatever. Rose's lime was kind of the only, you know, the only person with a, uh, what do you say, a horse in the race here? So... Um, there's a lot of theories of, of the Gimlet cocktail. Uh, uh, kind of the biggest one that people talk about is Thomas G. Gimlet. He joined the, uh, the Royal Navy in 1879. He was a surgeon, and um, the, the co two competing stories. One is that he was encouraging the, um, the sailors to take their, their lime juice rations by mixing it with gin, because they would be far more likely to drink um, to drink gin than lime juice. Um, the other one was that he was trying to moderate consumption by kind of cutting the gin with the lime juice. In any case, um, he died in 1943, and by that time, the Gimlet cocktail had become very popular, but it didn't mention that in his obituary. And he was also part of a book called Who Was Who, for, uh, it was like 1941 to 1950 or something like that, and they mentioned him, they had a biography of him, and they did not mention this cocktail. So probably not, probably not, that's where we got it. Um, I mean, really, when you dig into cocktail history, there's a lot of fantastic stories, and a lot of times we don't really know. So, I, uh, um, spoil alert, we don't really know. <laughs> I'm just telling you some theories. <laughs> um, um, there was also a tool that kind of looked like a corkscrew that was used to open up the containers of lime juice that were on the ships before roses was, was produced. So this would have been lime juice that was fortified with really funky Jamaican pot still rum to 15%. If you mix that with gin, that's gross. So I don't, I don't think that that, is, that that is it either. <laughs> um, the, uh, the Gillette cocktail, Chicago style. Uh, I really actually like kind of any mention of this book. This is 
kind of remarkable, this guy Tom Bullock, who is out of St. Louis, the first uh, African-American to ever publish a cocktail book. So he was a prominent bartender in 1917 in St. Louis. Um, anyways, he had a Gillette cocktail, um, which was Old Tom Gin, which was kind of a, a, a mild, slightly sweet gin, fresh lime juice, and sugar. Now that's what we call today a daiquiri, right? Um, the gimlet being specifically reserved for gin with lime cordial. Um, and, uh, but you know, Gillette, pretty similar, kind of similar. Um, and then the, um, in the Savoy cocktail book, uh, there's two mentions, the gimblet, which is very similar to the, um, to the, the Gillette cocktail, except it has soda in it. So it is, um, uh, actually that one doesn't have sugar, so it really is a lime ricky. So you've got gin, you've got lime juice, and you've got soda water, and that is, traditionally what a, what a Ricky is without the, without the sweetener. And then they also do publish a Gimlet cocktail. So now here we're seeing there's similar names but not exactly the same thing, and they have a Gimlet, and that does specify equal parts Plymouth Gin and Rose's Lime Cordial. Um, first actual printing that we know of, of the real, of the like true recipe, but obviously in 1930, not the first occurrence, right? Um, Rose's Lime. So Rose's Lime today, you may, you, have, you may have seen many of these versions. There are so many versions around the world. Um, in the UK, they sell things called uh, Lime Cordial. So we've got this one here, lime, uh, lime Juice Cordial. This one is Lime Cordial Mixer. This one's also Lime Juice Cordial. Depending on where you are in the world, there's different bottlings. Um, here in the US, we, uh, they sell it as uh, sweetened lime juice from Concentrate. Um, uh, I th for a while, I thought that it was because cordial in the U.S. Uh, specifically refers to alcoholic things, but apparently I'm wrong. You can make a, a non-alcoholic um, syrup and call it a cordial, which is odd um, that, not, that not more bartenders do that. But regardless, um, the U.S. Uh, uses high fructose corn syrup for the, it's owned by, it's owned by Schweppes now, which is uh, Cadbury, big, giant, giant company. Um, it was actually part of the big kind of conglomerate company that has owned in the past Heinz, uh, so that's like A1 Steak Sauce, um, uh, Stoli, I believe. They owned a bottled cocktail company called Cubeline that sold bottled, um, bottled daiquiris with, low, with lime cordial, which is really not, not a daiquiri. Um, anyways, the, right now if you go to a liquor store and you buy a bottle of Rose's Lime Juice, the ingredients in order are water, high fructose corn syrup, lime juice concentrate, sodium metabisulfite, preservative number 223, natural flavors, and blue number one. Um, so there's a reason why you don't see Rose's Lime in good bars, despite the fact that it is the thing in a, in a, uh, a gimlet. The problem is, is that that wasn't the way that it was back when the drink was first drunk. So uh, we do different things now to kind of compensate for that kind of stuff. Uh, we have a gimlet here, obviously. Um, this is, uh, I like to say that this is probably the best drink I've ever created, which is hilarious because I obviously didn't create it. Um, but <laughs> but I, I feel like I perfected it. So I took the important parts of lime cordial, which is the oils from the peels and the juice, and then having it be that preserved Kind of thing, so you've got a little bit of that, a little bit of that funk, and a little bit of that almost um, jammy quality to it. Um, so I, we, we take the, we take high proof um, Plymouth Navy Strength Plymouth, and we zest a bunch of limes, soak the zest in the Plymouth, and then we make a syrup with the lime juice and sugar, 
let that cool, combine the two after we've strained out that zest, and let it sit for a couple of days until it separates, and then we go through a long and painstaking filtration process. Um, but one of the things that I like so much about this drink is that when we stir it over ice, thereby diluting it, it glows. It has this like nice little louche, uh, appearance to it. It's the same reason that absinthe louches, when um, you have this high proof spirit, it, it does have uh, essential oils in it. And when you bring it down in proof by the dilution, those oil solution, those oil molecules are coming out of solution and into suspension, which creates a slight kind of milky glow to it. Um, so, the gimlet has been mentioned many times in. Uh, in, in, in different works of art that I think are really kind of funny because a lot of times the gimlet is seen as a drink of cowards or weak people. Um, in, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, in the short happy life of Francis Macomber, um, Ernest Hemingway, uh, they, there's a group of hunters and they have a very shameful, horrible hunt and unsuccessful, and they go and they drink gimlets in their shame. Um, <laughs> in, uh, in Glengarry Glenn Ross, the gimlet is what a, a, a weak-willed customer is drinking when he's getting the hard sell. Um, Edward Albee, uh, this one's pretty bad. Um, so in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and read this. So the, uh, the main character is talking about his wife, and he says, back when I was courting Martha, she'd order the damnedest things. We'd go into a bar, you know, a bar, a whiskey, beer, and bourbon bar, and what she'd do would be she'd screw up her face, think real hard, and come up with brandy alexanders, creme de cacao frappes, gimlets, flaming punch bowls, seven-layer liqueur things. But the years have brought to Martha a sense of, of essentials, the knowledge that cream is for coffee, lime juice for pies, and alcohol pure and simple. Here you are, angel, for the pure and simple. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> um, and then in, uh, with Raymond Chandler, it kind of gets slightly, uh, slightly redeemed. Um, and the two main characters are at a bar, and one of them says to the other, uh, they don't know how to make them here. What they call a gimlet is just some lime or lemon and gin with a dash of sugar and bitters. A real gimlet is half gin and half roses, lime juice, and nothing else. It beats martinis hollow, which I like. That's great. <laughs> um, and then for uh, anyone who doesn't drink or who wants to have a gimlet-like experience without, uh, without roses lime, now this is roses lime marmalade, um, slightly more natural, very hard to find here. You can find, like, I ended up finding it at um, uh, like a British grocery store place. But really, any kind of marmalade is made with both the juice and the peels. So you're going to get the oils from the peels in there. And the way I handle that in cocktails is I take equal parts of marmalade and hot water. And you can put it on a stove or if the water's already boiling, you just stir it until all the goopy bits of the marmalade are dissolved. And then you strain it out and you have what is very close to a cordial um, that you can then use in cocktails. So that is actually what we're using in the non-alcoholic bitter dricky that we have behind the bar. Um, and um, yeah, that is, that's, that's all I got. So thank you. Uh. I'm having a martini, by the way. <laughs> I know. I know people are gonna ask. <laughs> I drink my martinis. This is Farallon. I I play. I I am not. Um, uh, I'm not a, like a, a one gin woman. <laughs> this is Farallon. I drink my martinis wet up with a twist.
Wet means extra vermouth because vermouth is delicious. Um, anyways, so um, cheers to some sort of scurvy remedy not being so miserable. Thank you, Jennifer. And, and it should be noted that uh, our Gimlet actually has a wired video dedicated, well, half dedicated it to, to also to our use of ice and other things. So uh, look that uh, look that up, and we'll we'll post that on our socials and so forth. So um, thank you to our great uh, speakers so far. We have two more speakers. Uh, our next speaker, Kara Platoni. Uh, her book is available here uh, in in the back. Um, we have the technology, and I should say. Um, the, the, the Long Now Clock and, uh, and uh, Alexander Rose, our executive director, feature in her book. Um, it's uh, all about uh, different human senses and other perceptions. So the perception of time is the chapter in which we feature. What's, what's interesting is um, it has to be almost exactly three years ago because the interval was under construction when you were doing that interview. And you talk about Jen training the staff here. So it's kind of this perfect uh, connection going on here to do that. Uh, but just a quick reminder that Jen and all of our speakers are going to be sticking around so you can ask her more questions. If you didn't catch something in that recipe, et cetera, um, just uh, uh, keep it in mind because I'm not sure if we'll have time for our questions tonight. So um, we're going to have Kara with an insulting history. History, and then Jamie Jones, who spoke just earlier this year, uh, talking about some evolutionary paradoxes for you. So a big round of applause for Kara, please, everyone. Okay. Hello. Um, thank you. Yep, when I was writing my book, uh, Xander was actually putting the planets in the orrery that's right behind you. This place was just opening. So, um, okay, so I am not a, a, a linguist or a, a literary expert. I'm a science reporter. I teach at UC Berkeley. It's the end of the semester, and my connection to the subject matter is that I probably have scurvy <laughs> at this point. So, <laughs> so when you think of uh, scurvy as an insult, uh, you probably think of these guys. Uh, and it's true, scurvy, very bad for pirates and all sailors, but I'm here to argue that you should probably think of this guy. Uh, so Shakespeare lived right smack in the middle of the seafaring scurvy epidemic. He was alive between 1564 and, and the year 1616. So during his lifetime, Admiral Richard Hawkins, his fellow Brit, figured out the lemons and the limes trick but it's going to be another 150 years before James Lind uh, kind of put it to the test and scientifically proved that it worked. So scurvy remained a horrifying, gross, disgusting disease, which made it an awesome insult. So uh, Shakespeare wasn't the first guy, and he wasn't the only guy to use uh, uh, scurvy as an insult, but uh, he was the most elegant, the most famous, and Shakespeare was an artful and prolific insulter anyway. So today you can go online and you can look up, there's Shakespeare insult generators, and if you would prefer the analog version, Scholastic, you know, the publisher that makes books for kids, they have a Shakespeare insult kit, which is kind of like you take an insulting noun from column one and you put it with a scandalous adjective from col column two, and that somehow teaches you literature appreciation. There's a... <laughs> Um, there's actually an entire dictionary. It's called Shakespeare's Insults, a pragmatic dictionary. The author, her name is uh, Natalie Vien-Guerin, and she points out that many of the words that Shakespeare uses as insults aren't derogatory on their own. The insultingness kind of depends on tone and on context. So she writes, insults only exist when they are interpreted. And what she means is, um, like, you can, ins you can lovingly refer to somebody as a knucklehead, right? 
And you can, and Shakespeare apparently did, use otherwise adorable words like otter as an insult. So basically, whether a word is perceived as a tenderness or, or as an insult depends on how hard you are flinging it at someone. So Shakespeare used scurvy uh, 25 times uh, in, in his plays, mostly the good ones. He did not use it in the love sonnets. I checked. Um, <laughs> I, I recommend opensourcesshakespeare.org to you if you would like to look up any of Shakespeare's insults and how he deploys them. So here it is in King Lear, uh, and this is in one of the semi-demented king's uh, kind of rambling moments in which he nevertheless manages to score some really good insult points. So he writes, get thee glass eyes, and like a scurvy politician, seem to see the things that thou dost not. And uh, here it is in Othello. Um, and this is where the maid, Amelia, uses it to talk smack about the person who is trying to convince Othello that his wife is cheating on him. So she writes, the Moor, meaning Othello, is abused by some most villainous knave, some base notorious knave, some scurvy fellow. Now, little does she know that that person happens to be her husband, the, the villainous Iago, and she knows even less that he is standing right behind her. So in, in Romeo and Juliet, the nurse, who's Juliet's chaperone, uh, uses it to scold some of young Juliet's suitors uh, about uh, basically loving her and leaving her. So she says, now, afore God, I am so vexed that every part of me quivers. Scurvy knave, let me tell ye, should you lead her into a fool's paradise, if you should double deal with her truly, it were an ill thing to be offered. And finally, in The Tempest, uh, he actually puts it in the words of a drunken sailor, which is where it should be, right? So uh, this is Stefano, who believes he is uh, shipwrecked on a magical island, and he sings this. He says, I shall no more to sea to sea, here I shall die ashore. This is a very scurvy tune to sing at a man's funeral. Well, here's my comfort. And then he drinks. So um, now I'm not a language expert, but even I noticed that when you use scurvy this way, it undergoes two linguistic transformations. Um, so the first thing is that it goes from being a noun to being an adjective. It describes something, right? It modifies something, so it's like a scurvy dog or a scurvy rascal. And the second thing is that it moves into becoming a, a metaphor, right? So it's no longer about a physical ailment. It's about a moral failing. And today, in our dictionary, this is usually the first definition. So this is my Webster's Dictionary, and you can see it means low, mean, vile, or contemptible. Um, so now I should point out that scurvy is by no means Shakespeare's only medical uh, insult. He's got some other <laughs> choice cuts, like <laughs> infectious, puking, spleeny, yeasty, boil-brained, dizzy-eyed, fat-kidneyed, milk-livered, and canker-blossom. And in the modern day, we still use diseases as uh, insulting uh, imagery. So words like, um, you might have called something a cancer or a plague, use the term sickening, uh, if you're Brit British, you might have said bloody, uh, lousy, or scab, which in Shakespeare's time in the 1500s was essentially a synonym for kind of a scurvy rascal, but in the 1700s it mean, meant to um, somebody who crossed the picket line during a strike. So what makes disease such a powerful insult? Well, I'm not an etymologist, as you know, but uh, when I wrote a book about biohacking and sensory perception, I learned a lot about how finely tuned your brain is for danger. And one of your biggest defenses against biological danger, or, which is germs, is disgust, right? And so disgust is at least partly learned in that you have to learn something about uh, what it is to avoid. If you've ever watched a baby pick up a Band-Aid, you know that those protocols are not all hardwired, right? So we are cued about what should, oops, hang on. That's your brain. 
Phren phrenology, not an actual science. Um, so we're, we're cued about what should disgust us in a couple of ways. So one is that it's learned through your sense of smell and taste, um, but basically by uh, things that you've had bad experiences with. So if you've had a run-in with an unfortunate shrimp, then you're gonna be off shrimp for a while, right? Um, we're also unnerved by a face that doesn't look like a face, so a f or doesn't look entirely like a face. So uh, a healthy face should be symmetrical and proportional. And when it's not, that's an indicator to us either of a disease or it's an indicator uh, that's, that something is dead, that it's rotting, right? And either way, your brain goes, oh my God, there's a pathogen. Whatever got him could get me, so I need to get away. Um, this is the origin of the uncanny valley, which you have probably all heard of before. Uh, the idea that we like uh, images of human faces that are photorealistic. Um, so it kind of the curve goes up as things get more humanoid and then it drops when things get close to photorealistic but not quite. Uh, and then they, they, they go up again uh, when they're totally realistic. So this is not the original uh, uh, drawing of the uncanny valley by uh, uh, Masahiro Mori. This is a reworking that I found on Wikimedia Commons by a guy or a lady I know only as S. Murray and Chester, but whoever this person is is a genius because they've amended the original to add corpse, which is germane to our point, and zombie. <laughs> right there at the low point. <laughs> So finally, the other way we learn what to avoid is by looking at other people's reactions. So there is a universally recognized disgust face um, that kind of uh, we automatically do when we eat something that's spoiled or, the, or bitter. So Rachel Hurst, who's a researcher on the, your sense of smell, wrote a book called That's Disgusting. That is all about this. And she describes that face this way. She said, we close our body, especially our face, off from invasion, which is why your upper lip retracts, your nose scrunches up, and your eyes squint. And if it's really bad, you might cough, you might spit, you would stick out your tongue, you might even throw up. You're trying to expel the bad thing from your body. And when you see somebody doing this, you know to avoid whatever it is that they just ate or touched. And so when physical wretchedness stands in for moral wretchedness, it triggers the same feeling, which is disgust, and the same reaction, which is avoidance. And the facial cues we use for social rejection or something that disgusts us morally are the same. You squint your face, you sneer, you, you stick out your tongue, you make fake gagging uh, motions. Um, and all of these are signals of social contempt and of a person or a behavior that we should avoid. And so insults serve this purpose too. They signal contempt and they assert your own social status while they diminish somebody else's. There's actually a little branch of psychology called maledictology, which is the study of uh, swearing and, uh, and cursing. And when you look through the kind of online dictionaries and lists of swear words that these guys have curated, and I have, um, you'll see that diseases are a top source for insults, but they're not the only ones. The other ones are sex, poop, your mama, and your God. And you get a better <laughs> reaction when you combine the sacred and the revolting for best effects. So an insult about your mama is bad, and insults about your mama and sex is worse. When you mix that with uh, disease or defecation, it's even worse. And when you combine it with God, it's blasphemy. So. Um, so now disease metaphors might be very useful in terms of evolutionary biology and keeping us safe from infection, but they're not very, well, nice, right? 
And we're becoming increasingly aware of how not nice some of them are because of the way that the language is changing. So a lot of the old health-related insults are now considered really awful and upsetting because they mock people's disabilities or mental health. So today we would teach kids not to say things like crazy or schizo or lame or retarded, right? But you know, even just a short while ago when we were growing up, these were very common. Um, slurs left over from a time when these conditions were considered scary or disgusting and we had less empathy and respect for people who have them. And let's not forget that a lot of things that are kind of marketed to us as a health slur is actually based on a racial or ethnic stereotype, which actually brings us back to scurvy. So once the Brits figured out the citrus trick, the sailors in the Caribbean started to put, as, as you heard before, lime, into their, into their beer, because it was cheap and limes were, limes were available, right? Um, and so limey became an ethnic insult for the Brits, right? Now, as you also know, it turned out lime juice did not work so hot. By 1860, the disease had actually rebounded, because lime juice wasn't as good as lemon juice. And speaking of things that didn't work, in Caribbean slang, there's a word called liming which means basically to loiter or to hang out as though one is a British sailor with nothing better to do than to lie under the trees or to go to the bars and drink beer. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Oh, I forgot to show you my not historic photo <laughs> of lime and beer. They did not have Schlitz. Okay, <laughs> so uh, last point. So we know that diseases can uh, become swears, but can swearing make you healthier? And the answer is maybe. There's a researcher named Richard Stevens at Keele University in the UK who studies basically the health effects of swearing. So in 2011, he did a study where he had people stick their hands in a bucket of ice cold water, and he found that people who uh, were allowed to swear could hold their hand in the bucket of water 40 seconds longer than people who had to yell a neutral word. <laughs> And yeah, <laughs> and in a paper published this year, he followed up and he uh, had people either ride an exercise bicycle or do a hand grip test, either while swearing or yelling a neutral world word. And lo and behold, the swearers were stronger in both exercises. Yeah. So, and it's not clear why it happens. He thought it was because it activates your your fight or flight response and that it would increase your heart rate, but it turned out it's not actually doing that. So now he thinks it might be something simpler, like swearing creates a distraction or it makes you love self conscious, you're paying less attention to your pain. So, uh, so that's it for me, and now to the toast. Thank you, all right. So, all right, for a toast, so to the bard, well, here's to your comfort, drink. <laughs> Kara's a tough act to follow, <laughs> but I will do my best. Um, I wore my grant writing t-shirt today. I, I, I came from the office and I was writing grants today, so I'm, I'm, I'm in a hustling mood. Uh, and I have my very academic looking title slide. Uh, so I'm going to talk today about why, do we, why are we at risk for getting scurvy? It seems like a weird thing. It's this awful disease that killed so many sailors and has killed so many people worldwide, and apparently 8% of Americans have scurvy. Who knew? Um, why is it that we're vulnerable to getting scurvy? And, and so here we go. I, I'll sing. Birds do it. 
trees do it. Lampreys in the sea do it. Let's do it. Let's biosynthesize vitamin C. <laughs> Why is it that we don't do this? We would not get scurvy if we could synthesize vitamin C. All these other vertebrates, and for Christ's sake, pretty much all of higher life synthesizes vitamin C. We do not. Okay, so there's a bit of a mystery here. What is vitamin C good for? It's good for lots of things. It's the most important antioxidant that we have dietarily, and we have it dietarily because we don't synthesize it. Um, it's an antioxidant which cleanses the system of reactive oxygen species, free radicals, as they're frequently known. And these things destroy cell membranes, uh, and they induce genetic mutations. These are the major causes of aging, okay? So that by taking in more of the, the vitamin C, the antioxidant, we age less. We reduce our, uh, the oxidative damage that causes us to age. It's in every tissue, and it's in every cell type. It's really important. This guy here, I just love this picture. Albert Georgi uh, is a Hungarian physiologist who figured out, uh, who he isolated vitamin C. And this is his portrait for his Nobel Prize, which he won in 1937. <laughs> And I just love the idea of where, uh, Albert or, or Professor Georgi, Gorgi, we're going to take your picture. He's like, oh, wait, let me go get my cigar, right? You know? <laughs> this is like, this is, uh, these guys were medical scientists. Um, so he found this in 1937. He, he elucidated the citrus cycle uh, and found it in, in, we've subsequently found it in all sorts of Mother Nature's creatures. Here I have a phylogenetic relationship. So these are the evolutionary relationships. It's like a genealogy of mammals. And all the ones that are in black produce their own vitamin C. All the ones in red don't. And we can see that this isn't somehow some sort of quirk of history, right? It's not like the, everybody's in the same lineage who doesn't produce vitamin C. There are three groups of mammals. Uh, hum uh, it doesn't work. Humans. And, and other anthropoid primates, okay? Uh, but not lemurs and, and the strepsirines. So not all primates uh, have lost vitamin C synthesis. Bats, including fruit bats and ins insectivorous bats, and guinea pigs. As far as I know, there are no other rodents that can't do it. Guinea pigs alone. So we have bats, we have guinea pigs, and we have humans. Chimpanzees... This is a chimp in the Kibale National Park in Uganda. I watched this particular chimp eat, I'd say, a thousand of these fruits in one day. They, they go to town. They're ripe fruit specialists, and when they eat fruit, they eat a lot of fruit. They are in no danger of ever having scurvy. <laughs> Gorillas. This is, this is Quitanda. He lives in Rwanda. I strongly recommend if you ever have an opportunity to go to Rwanda. It's the most amazing country. And go gorilla trekking. And you'll go spend an hour with these guys, and they literally live in a salad bowl, okay? <laughs> they literally live in a salad bowl. And, and, and you can eat some of their, the things that they eat. They don't actually eat leaves. They eat mostly pits of the stems of plants. And if you take a bite of them, you'll find they're very peppery, and they're very sour, right? So there's just a ton of vitamin C. He's never going to get scurvy. We get scurvy. And it's gross. 
Scurvy is a very old-timey disease, as we've been introduced to. Another very old-timey disease that I have a picture of here is gout, which is related to the formation. How many people have gout? Yeah, I do. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Um, it's, it, it's caused, it's a very painful condition when uric acid forms crystals in your joints. It's an arthritic condition, and it hurts like hell. And it was associated with this sort of high life of 18th century Europe, this sort of decadent culture. Uh, and here's a devil putting a, a poker on this poor guy's foot, right? And I don't have time to go into it, but it turns out that the thing that makes us vulnerable for, for gout is very similar to the thing that makes us vulnerable for vitamin C. So I think that there is actually a story that links these two things together. But that's just a teaser, because I don't have time to talk about it. So. A little comparative biology. Big animals live longer than small ones. This is just a plot. There are logarithms of maximum lifespan and body mass for 1,400 mammals. Primates live longer than mammals in general. Basically, everybody except for this poor guy is above the, the mammalian line. And that goes for little cute things like mouse lemurs, fit in the palm of my hand, big things like gorillas, that's the biggest of the primates, and humans. And this is uh, Emma Moreno, who died last month in, in April. She's the oldest human being uh, with a recorded birthday. She was 117 and 133 days. She's the last known human to have been born in the 19th century who, who, to die. So we're remarkably long-lived. Primates in general are long-lived. Humans are particularly long-lived. And it, just in case you think that's like an artifact of modern medicine, the modal age of death of hunter-gatherers living in the Kalahari Desert, the, the, the Bushmen, the Kung Bushmen, uh, is 70, right? So they have a life expectancy at birth of, of about 35, but that's because so many five-year-olds die, or, or uh, five and unders. If you survive to your fifth birthday, you're probably going to survive to your 65th birthday. So long lifespan is, is a part, you know, three score and ten years, as the Bible tells us. This is part of, of human biology. This other group, bats, live a long time. They're long-lived little critters. And bear in mind that most bats weigh 50 grams. Right? They're down at the far end of this, the far left end of this plot. That includes the adorable bumblebee bat. And, and the maybe not so adorable, depending on how you feel about it, uh, flying fox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so both humans and, and the other anthropoid primates and bats have taken one of two different strategies that you can take for, for getting by in a highly variable world. The one thing, so this is a picture of temperature over the last two million years, and one way you can deal with this, so it goes up and down, that's the only reason it's, it's on there. One reason, one way you can deal with a highly variable environment is you try to cram all your reproduction into the good periods in between the bad periods, right? And that's what rodents do, that's what lots of insects do, right? That's what little things with big reproductive rates do. The other thing you can do is you can spread your reproduction out and you can try to average over the good and bad times. And that's what humans do, and that's what bats do, okay? So there's been enormous selection for long lifespan in primates, humans in particular, and bats. This is a little brown bat, genus Myotis. It's a common bat of North America. 
This guy lives 42 years. 70 grams fits easily in my hand. I could probably fit two of them in my hand. So just to give you a sense of how crazy long-lived they are, I'm going to plot in little brown bat equivalents the lifespan of three different mammals. A little brown bat lives one little brown bat years. In order to get that amount of lifespan, you would need to have four manatee lifespans or six Mongolian gazelle lifespans. That's a critter that's this big, right? The little brown bat fits in my hand. These are very long-lived things, okay? And so my point is basically that, that long lifespan is associated with the inability to synthesize vitamin C. All the mammals who have lost the ability to synthesize vitamin C, which we do in our livers, well, <laughs> the lucky ones of us who can uh, do it in our livers, we've all lost the same uh, step in the synthetic pathway. It's called GULO, and, and, and it's the last step that produces L-ascorbate, which is ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C. And now remember, vitamin C, its primary role, it's an antioxidant, right? It scoops up free radicals, reactive oxygen species, it cleans them up. But in order to produce it, this step, guess what it produces? Hydrogen peroxide, a very strong oxidizing agent. Perhaps some of you have had this experience of pouring hydrogen peroxide onto a cut. The same thing that happens on the outside happens on the inside. It destroys cells. It, it induces mutations. This is why doctors say this is probably not the best way uh, to clean a cut, right? It, because it's, it's, it actually damages tissues. So if you are a thing that needs to live a long time because you're trying to average over this super variable environment and get, get by in a variable world, and you can get your vitamin C dietarily, then the selection on you know, keeping that, that metabolic pathway is greatly relaxed, you can get away with it. Most primates can get away with it, right? These long-lived things, uh, we, we, uh, we've had this strong selection for the lack of vitamin C synthesis, and incidentally, uh, for uric acid, the thing that puts us at, at risk of gout, um, for most primates and probably most humans, right, as James pointed out, that if you're a hunter-gatherer, you're really not in danger of, of not getting enough vitamin C. But as soon as you colonize these new areas, these de deserts, the oceans, the Arctic, you put yourself at danger because we can't synthesize it in our damn livers. <sighs> Guinea pigs are harder. <laughs> And I'm just going to end by saying that as rodents go, guinea pigs are actually pretty long-lived. A guinea pig can live for 12 years. And there's actually a slightly more complicated story than the one I've told you today that the guinea pigs fit into, and I think it actually is quite consistent. But they're not going to set any, any lifespan records, although as, as rodents go, they do pretty well. So that's all I've got. Thanks for putting up with it. Oh, my toast. Yes. I'm going to keep it simple. To the bats. They eat mosquitoes. Yeah. All right. So I'm not in them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think, uh, I think we, are, we are right 
Oh, we are right up on it. Um, everybody, uh, all you guys come up. Let's get all the speakers oh, on stage. So, so with apologies, time has, has caught us a bit, so we're not going to have time for Q&A, but they're all going to stick around. Um, each one of them has a million more stories. I want to uh, say one quick thing, um, which is, as, as sort of came out, none of these are, are, are experienced scurbiologists. I want to... Um, all these guys did an amazing job of, of, uh, of, of coming up with some incredible material uh, for this, uh, all kind of adjacent to your expertise. But um, really, uh, we'll give one last round of applause to, to appreciate these guys for the quick study nature of their talks tonight. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.